Just rambling here, you know? Just checking in with her, waking up with Jack Luna. I got death all around me lately. I wake up at four in the morning. I row on my little rowing machine. And I think about the people who have passed around me recently. I had uh, Kim Phillip, who was a really close friend of mine. Lori Kukendall, who was uh, doing the merch for Dark Topic. And uh, passed suddenly, tragically. And um, her uh, husband, uh, we'll, we'll have a conversation too, Nate. I have um, my friend Cam who died in a blaze at the bar in town. The whole bar burned down. And I think it was as a result of his... Um, I just got a message from my girl saying, I want to I see the Barbie movie. It looks kind of fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah, me too. Um, <clears throat> I have death in my relationship suddenly. Uh, and um, there's more. There, there's more. Um, a buddy of mine killed a guy for cheating on his girlfriend, and that's kind of a death in my life that he's gone to prison probably for the rest of his life. Um, who else? I, I swear there, there was there was oh there was an accident. I changed a person, but um, the woman across the street. I was in very close contact with her for the last couple of years. She would message me at night and say things like, um, my pill container, I can't open my pill container. She had cancer. And um, the thing between her and I and our family is that we've been here for 12 years. And from the start, she was very into us, like as her neighbor. She's there by herself. And she would come and give the kids she remember their birthdays and give them stuff for their birthday on Christmas she would bring over you know a Christmas card in the summer whatever she grew in her garden she'd bring over something for us um, her and I were very close we would talk out front um, often just about life and like I said she was like a social worker like a psychiatrist psychologist um, we talk a lot and uh, I was worried about her for the past couple of years I, I just mentioned that she would she messaged me, I think it, probably about two months ago, where it was a quarter to midnight. And I was reading Needful Things by Stephen King. And there was a passage in that book where the woman, she had like some crippling arthritis. And she tried to open up her pill bottle and all the pills fell on the ground. And she was using her tongue to pick up all the pills to subside her arthritis because there was someone at the door and she had to open the door or whatever. I just finished reading this passage and I get a message from my neighbor who is um, dying of cancer that she needs help opening a pill bottle. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that is so, <laughs> so eerie that I was just reading about a pill bottle spilling everywhere and now she's asking me to do this. So, you know, I go do that. And, um... In the early mornings, I'm waking up and I'm feeling like there's so many spirits around me, like my my aunt and uh, Kim Phillip, and um, it's amazing. I can't think of. It feels like there's more. Um, like you know, my grandmother, and they're trying to tell me to change my life. I'm seeing 911 on the clock all the time, and there's um, curtains moving and. Uh, lights, automatic lights turning on when they shouldn't be turning on and I'm getting in this sense that I need to make a change in my life and now about five days ago the lady across the street passes away and I just find myself rowing this rowing machine and looking at my window and I always knew she was in there and it was kind of like a um, in the house I mean and it was 
always a comfort to know she was there. She was a very supportive person of me, and her and I had this great relationship, and I'd see her light on, you know, at four in the morning, because when her cancer to the point it was at, she would be up at all hours of the night, and I guess there's something called chemo brain, where, you know, you'll get very, um, I don't know a lot about this, but like it seemed like she would get manic at times, and she would be messaging me in the middle of the night, and we'd have conversations, and suddenly she wasn't there anymore, and there was just this empty feeling across the street around me. I miss uh, her warmth across there. Just before she passed, she actually came... Well, she didn't come over. She asked me to come over. And she had a present for me. And what she had done is she had taken a picture of our house because I had fixed... We fixed up our house quite a bit. Um, We lived in like a really crappy house that we bought for $30,000 10 years ago when we first moved out here. And since then, we've fixed a lot of the rotting wood outside and put siding on and got air conditioning and uh, fixed up the lawn and all that. And she, she really loved the view that she had near the end, looking at her window. And she took a picture of our house and made it into a puzzle. In my last conversation with her, I'll actually, I'll actually um, read it to you here, was, I'm going to have to go back not that far. She just passed away. Yeah. She said, uh, this is seven days before she passed. For your information, just thought I'd let you know that if you don't see the cat out and about anymore, it's because we brought her to another person and uh, things are a little tougher for me and I don't think Kitty has been feeling that well either, so it's time she got introduced to the new family. This is at 5.49 in the morning. (laughs) And I said, I haven't seen the cat, so good to know. Good to hear from you as well. Let me know if you ever need anything. We've done your puzzle twice now. Going to glue it. Uh, you got us into puzzles over here, so thanks for that. And she says, I love puzzles. You could probably frame it and hang it on your wall. And I said, we will. And she said, awesome. And that was the last time I spoke to her. <sighs> people come, people go. Sometimes you just have people around you for so long and you kind of take them for granted, like in the town that I'm in. Uh, we're not from around here, but now we are. It's been 12 years, and she was there for the all 12. She saw my kids grow up, and now she's just not there, and she just was. And that house that seems so warm and comforting all the time when I look out my window suddenly is so empty. The lights aren't on, and uh, the, the snow isn't plowed. I almost want to go over there and shovel it. Everything is so fleeting. I've been thinking, anyways, about going on a trip. I've been looking at the uh, Carolinas for a while, and there's uh, some cool places there. I don't know why that place draws me, but maybe part of the reason is the story that I'm about to share with you. This is from Patreon, and uh, I'll share it right now. Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. Did 
just 20 minutes from downtown Charleston, South Carolina, exists a truly wonderful spot known as Folly Island, upon which lays Folly Beach, spread out like a sandy carpet before the Atlantic Ocean, in a place widely known as the Edge of America. There's a working lighthouse of 150 years, a large fishing pier, miles of clean, wide-open beach, waves that attract surfers from around the country, making the spot a popular tourist attraction. And those lucky enough to live here get around on golf carts. The food scene is strictly independent, no large chains allowed, worn-out signs advertising seafood and cold beer in place of the classic golden arches. There's beach houses for rent, kitschy little shops. The people move slow. Big hats, sunglasses, flip-flops, and tan shoulders. Time seems a little odd here. The air shimmers, as if the past wants back in. Something unnatural lies in its recent history that's bothering the normally indifferent nature of such a powerful place. Folly Island is very much as it would have been 50 years ago, though the beach has changed. Hurricane Hugo wiped out a large swath of coastal homes back in 1989 and created a thriving surf scene in the washout. Before this, Folly Beach had some cover. It wasn't teeming with tourists as it is today, separated from town by a barrier of overgrowth dotted with the odd vacation home. It felt private back then, hidden, like a secret, a forgotten place on the edge of America that only the ocean kept company, wide open, lonely, and indifferent. A place where if one stands too long on the shore, they can disappear, float away. The perfect place for a killer to hunt, observing from an abandoned structure, using the sound of crashing waves to disguise his footfalls as he pounced upon prey like an alligator, dragging perfectly innocent teenage girls into his lair to enjoy at sunset. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Folly Beach. In a place seemingly monikered for unfortunate, foolish, even criminal acts to take place, Folly Island in the mid-70s lived up to its name. On February the 14th, Valentine's Night of 1974, it became apparent that something unusual was happening on the island after a teenage girl is found tied to a tree in the woods behind a shopping center. It's nighttime and the unidentified victim had been walking a dirt path with her groceries when a dark-haired man with piercing black eyes emerges from the bush pointing a gun at the girl. He pushes her against a tree and starts tying her up, expertly binding her hands to her ankles, using her shorts to create the ligatures, tearing them up on the spot, leaving the girl shivering in her underwear, before tossing a noose over a tree branch and tightening it around the young woman's throat. She can see only his eyes. His beard, his dark curly hair blend into the darkness. The dim moonlight helps her to make out that he may be Italian. The man is in his late 20s or early 30s. He's intense, merciless, not wanting to hear the girl's pleas. He gags her, then begins to roughly molest her. She is surely about to be raped, and the attacker maybe is the type to kill her by hanging as he does so. But then he stops. The girl's eyelids are squeezed shut and they fly open when she hears it too. The sounds of someone, people, walking along the path towards them, through the woods. The attacker gives the girl one more snapshot of his evil stare, then vanishes. She spits out the gag and begins calling for help, which soon comes. A miracle, 
as far as true crime stories go. The troubling incident is reported, and soon the Folly Beach PD have a suspect. Some creep exposing himself at a gas station is brought in and put in a lineup for the girl to look at. But it's not him. Are you sure, young lady? Please take a look again. She does, but only to be polite to the officer. It is not him. They were sure they had the guy. What were the chances that the good people of Folly Beach had two perverts amongst them? Folly Beach PD isn't ready for this. The term serial killer is foreign to their small police force. Even if they knew what one was, this wasn't the type of place you'd expect to grow one. The hope is that the incident under the tree was a one-off. There are two missing girls from last May that have yet to be found, and if the parents catch wind of this, there's a real chance an investigation will have to get underway. And who wants that? Folly Beach is safe. No need to get the people all worked up over a couple runaways and some horned-up Italian with a pair of dark eyes. The police of Folly Beach didn't believe in boogeymen, so they didn't bother to warn anyone. Not even their own teenage girls. One week later, a blonde, curly-haired, pretty 16-year-old girl named Erlene Bunch is sitting on a bench near the Folly Island police station when she is abducted by the man with the black eyes. And this is all kinds of trouble, because the reason Erlene Bunch was sitting outside the police station is for one, she lives on the street, the safest street in Folly Beach, and two, her father is the chief of police. Erlene is gone, no trace, and everything is blown wide open with this event. Since the weekend of May 23rd, 1973, nine months passed, two families have been pleading with Chief Bunch and his officers to look closely at the case of their two missing girls, best friends, 13-year-old Alexis Ann Latimer and 14-year-old Sherry Jan Clark. Their odd disappearance, to this point, have been considered a case of two runaways. A couple girls who met a couple boys, and, you know, these things happen. Not too much to be done about it. But as the chief of police's daughter continues to not show up weeks late for dinner, it is conceded that perhaps some style of folly is afoot on Folly Beach. The so-called runaways, Alexis and Sherry, were at Folly Beach to help Alexis's parents prepare their recently purchased beach home for the summer of 73. A summer that should have been full of fun and grand memories for both girls, but one the two star students had allegedly given up, along with their families, to run away with some boys, taking with them only their shorts, sandals, and t-shirts. They, of course, had not run away, and their parents had never stopped trying to convince police of this up until the chief's daughter went missing herself. Mary Latimer, mother of 13-year-old Alexis, Alexis with the braces and the big smile, the orange t-shirt and bright white shorts, waving goodbye the afternoon she'd vanished, best friend at her side, off to collect seashells for 20 minutes behind the dunes before they'd be headed back home. Mary Latimer was so desperate for help to find her daughter that she wrote a letter to Holland, addressed to then-famed Dutch psychic Gerard Crosset. Now, don't go reading Crosset's Wikipedia because the story isn't there. All you'll find is the usual skepticism, jotted down by some magicless killjoy out to fill the world with their brand of limp, uninspired truth, which is fair. But what's unfair is finding no information on the long-dead clairvoyance near Bullseye in this case. Crosset, for no fee, writes back to the desperate mother living on the edge of America. He bluntly tells her that her daughter and her friend are dead, have been since the day they vanished. 
he sends a map that resembles the shoreline out front of their beach home. There is a line to the north side of Folly Beach where he believes the girls are buried. The sketch includes a shaky-looking structure. It's to be taken with a grain of sea salt. The families of the two girls know this, but they are devastated by the letter. Meanwhile, a man with black eyes is haunting Folly Beach, searching for new victims. When on April the 12th of 1974, a Good Friday, nearly a year since young Alexis and Sherry were seemingly swept away by the salty surf, and only two months since roping himself the chief of police's daughter, the man with the black eyes manages to collect three 16-year-old girls from the north side of the beach. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences, they have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. The girls are looking down, searching for sand dollars, deafened by the surf as a dark-haired man with a beard and empty black eyes approaches them from behind, holding a gun with a towel over it. He demands the trio do as he says, or he will kill them, something he claims to have done three times already. The girls are then marched off of the beach. This is a vast, vast beach. I've never seen such a beach. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been many places. I've only been to the ocean once. And I guess it reminds me of just that one time I went to the ocean where you just, you feel like you're on the, you're on the earth. You can almost see the curvature of the, of the earth, you know? You just feel like you're, you're riding on the top of this organic spaceship. You really do feel like you can float away in such places, and these girls in a way do. They float away from the surf, into the scrub, up towards a vacant beach house. They go down into the basement where there's an old shower, the type that makes you feel dirty. The walls are made of slats, they're unevenly spaced. The beach breeze is blowing through it, and the beach itself can be seen and heard through the slats. It's a place that's forgotten, and a place to be forgotten within. Above, on stilts, hovers a decrepit structure, not unlike that in the sketch a desperate mother received from a so-called clairvoyant, far away over the edge of America. The man with the black eyes demands the girls get on their bellies. When they try to reason with him, he points the gun and barks that they shut up. Each girl is hogtied, that is, with their hands behind their backs, attached to their ankles, then gagged with strips of cloth. One of the girls notices a scar on the man's right ankle. 
Another gets a good look at the gun that the man has set down. Her stomach sinks when she realizes it's just a toy. They are helpless now, all three of them, hogtied expertly with rope. And the man announces that it's time for each of them to die. But then the sound of a radio wafts in from the beach. It sounds like a police radio. And just like the action in the woods, this situation that's going so wrong for the victims suddenly takes a turn. The man tells the girls to keep quiet or he'll kill them with his toy gun. One of the girls, Donna, pushes her gag out with her tongue when the man slinks away. She has spotted a police officer walking along the beach through the wooden slats. Donna begins screaming for help, hoping to be heard over the crashing surf, and is relieved to see the officer freeze at her first call. Three hogtied girls, mere moments from a horrific end, are saved. The officer enters the vacant beach house, climbs down into the drafty dungeon where he unties the incredibly compromised girls, then calls in the scene as they cry and hug one another, knowing how lucky they are to be alive. The man with the black eyes is gone. He doesn't pop out with an axe and split the cop's head in half as he fiddles with his radio. No, this isn't a horror movie, though it sounds like one. This shit's over. This scene is over. They are safe. And wow, that's four girls that have escaped certain death at the last moment in this story, this true crime story. This never happens in these true crime stories, as you know. Nobody was on the beach. It turns out the cop had been called out to check on some surfers, possibly in trouble with the day's strong waves, but nobody was out there. The officer had actually walked down to the ocean and scanned the waves for a spell, all while a homicidal maniac hogtied and gagged three teenage girls in a makeshift dungeon previously used to kill three currently missing girls. The prints from the abduction are still fresh on the beach when the cop, seeing no signs of any troubled surfing, then walked right by the vacant beach house with three girls about to be raped and strangled within. We're talking ten, even five more minutes. Maybe three more minutes, and it's a completely different story. They're gagged. The time for negotiation has passed. They're hogtied. They're completely immobile. It's party time for the killer. And the chances of anyone, let alone a cop, strolling past this portion of the vast beach at this time are maybe only divinely possible. The detailed description the girls give is quite useful, and a sketch is soon made of a man with dark eyes, dark hair, and a clear scar on his right ankle. The sketch and information are circulated everywhere, in the Folly Beach paper, on the local news, plastered across the island. I'm doing this sketch no justice here. The nose and mouth are faded away by time, leaving all the focus on the eyes. It's as if the evil in them is stained there. It's also as if the girls were spellbound by those eyes, and all they could do was obsessively recount in vivid detail the eyes, just like all of his other surviving victims had. Eyes so black that the lead of the pencil recreating them surely snapped in the process. These haunting eyes are everywhere now on Folly Beach. Plastered across the island, nobody can miss them. They float through the nightmares of every Folly Beach resident until many are sure they've seen the man who owns them. Somewhere. The eyes are familiar. Everyone knows everyone on Folly Island. And within days of the sketch's release, police have a solid suspect. 31-year-old Richard Valenti, a seaman stationed at a nearby naval base, a father and a husband who enjoys spending his free time in Folly Beach's many bars, has been brought to the attention of investigators after a woman sees the eyes and is certain she'd seen them before when Valenti had assaulted her after a wild night of drinking. 
She hadn't reported the incident, feeling that she wouldn't be taken seriously. But Valenti's murderous eyes, the use of ropes, his dangerous style of speech, had stuck with her. Valenti lives less than a block from the vacant beach house. A search of his locker at the naval base reveals books on bondage, ligature, literature, racy rope reading, if I may. At his home, a little Folly Beach cottage, he's arrested. An officer lifts Valenti's right pant leg and reveals a clear scar. In the home, they find a torn bedspread that matches the strips of cloth used to hogtie the fortunate trio of girls. But there are three more girls missing, and it doesn't take long for Richard Valenti, his appearance disguised by a clean shave, to admit he'd been stealing and slaying girls on Folly Beach since the summer of 73. He chain smokes and seems to relish the opportunity to come clean about his true nature. The urge had been with him for as long as he could remember to tie up girls. Maybe it had something to do with his mother mistreating him and gave him some power to feel like he had control in relationships with women. He tried it on willing partners, the bondage. His wife had attempted to keep him satiated, but the choking to death aspect was missing. Valenti explains that for him, there's an indescribable feeling of power that comes with watching a terrified innocent choke to death. Two is even better, if he can get him. Three would have been incredible, but it seems he'd pushed it too far. That one was divine intervention, no doubt. He'd known his time was up when that cop showed up on the beach. Perhaps the girls buried in the sand had something to do with it. Maybe they called him somehow. Valenti admits to killing the chief's daughter in the vacant beach house. He'd stolen her at gunpoint while she walked home, and she'd been just perfect. Hogtied on her belly, nothing but the wind and the waves and the delicious sounds of the rope tightening about her windpipe. Slowly, she went, whistling away as her legs lost strength and pulled the rope taut, victim and predator both red in the face, in the throes of ultimate release. He buried her seven feet under the sand. By this point, investigators are already aware that Erlene Bunch had been buried in the sand. They'd found the 16-year-old, the police chief's daughter, after a man walking his dog had become suspicious about a place on the beach that his dog could not get enough of. A digger was brought onto the beach, and after multiple passes, they'd given up. When the man operating the machine decided to give the sand one more swipe, the bucket rose, and it held long tails of curly blonde hair. There she lay, deep under the sand, bound as she'd been upon the death they now learn about. Richard Valenti tells the story of how he'd taken 14-year-old Sherry and 13-year-old Alexis. It had gone much the same as the three fortunate girls, but this time no cop would appear from thin air. In fact, no cop would even be allowed to look at that case for two weeks after the best friends vanished. Protocol at the time had been to wait for two weeks, just to be certain it was serious. You'll find those two buried behind the vacant beach house. I draw you a map, but I hear some quack psychic already penciled one for you. Valente had stolen the girls from the beach as they searched for seashells and forced them up into the old vacant beach house. He'd pushed them downstairs, taken them to the old shower area, tied them up, assaulted them at his leisure before forcing each to stand on a chair. Then he tied a noose around each girl's neck while their parents and their siblings combed the beach, calling out for them to please come home. But it was all over by then. He'd secured each noose to an overhead beam, and then that's when Valenti claims the girls began to panic and soon fell into one another, 
slipping from the chairs and strangling themselves. He, of course, didn't intervene, just watched the life run out of two sweet, innocent young girls, their families forever tortured by their heinous murders. Valenti tells investigators that he buried them in a shallow grave behind the vacant beach house, a grave that's soon unearthed, and the skeletons of the girls revealed. They are still in their summer clothes from that fateful May day of 73. The ropes lay limp where flesh is eroded. The sun reflects off the braces on the teeth of one skull. Braces Alexis had been looking forward to have taken off when school started up again. In the summer of 1974, a trial lasting four days ends with an hour of deliberation. Two life sentences are handed down to Richard Valenti. Valenti is not tried in the Earlene Bunch case, only for Alexis and Sherry. The lack of closure for the Bunch family is difficult. The acts of the Folly Beach serial killer tear apart the Oceanside community. This isn't what this place is supposed to be. It's a sleepy island. No need to be vigilant and lock your doors. Until a dark-eyed man began collecting skeletons like seashells on the north side of the beach. Folly wants to forget, but it couldn't, as Valenti takes advantage of a new South Carolina law passed soon after his incarceration that allows him to apply for parole every two years. Richard Valenti makes sure to apply those every two years until his death after a long illness in 2020. Not COVID-related as some try and spin it for some reason. He's just old and mean still when he dies. He terrorized the families of the community for decades. They could never fully feel closure. Valenti used the parole hearings as a way to mock the system and to show his lack of remorse. Folly Beach suffered in silence up until just recently. Haunted by the acts of a serial killer it took them far too long to accept was among them. And now, he's finally fully gone. And the vast emptiness of the edge of America seems once again able to breathe and be full with a life drawn to it once again. Such things haunt a place of beauty. They imprint an ugly feeling, lend a darkness on even the sunniest day. Folly Beach, from what I can glean as an amateur Canadian clairvoyant, the beach feels indifferent again. After decades of seeming shell-shocked and shimmering with the reverberations of its haunted past, it feels indifferent, as nature should. And that'll do it. Thank you, as always, for your high-level support here at the 13th floor and Tier 25. I was actually planning on visiting Folly Beach, which is why it sounds like I've been there. I spent quite a while watching video on the area, so I do feel I have a feel for the place. Check it out if you have a moment. Maybe some of my descriptions and odd little comments throughout the episode won't feel so far out. A very strange feeling about Folly Beach. I think now it's kind of a good feeling, now that uh, Valenti is gone. You know how that is when you get so accustomed to something being off, being tainted, being haunted even, that eventually you begin feeling a deep nostalgia for it. You can't help but be attached to it in a way. Kind of like Brooks when he left Shawshank in the Shawshank Redemption, then hanged himself. Anyways, I hope you all are well. I'm dead sober and struggling not to become identified by my alcohol use or disuse, so I don't even know why I keep bringing it up. I had a bad dream where I walked into the bedroom and fell to the floor in slow motion and my heart was like a fist in my chest. I had, it felt very real. I had a cup of water in my hand uh, in the dream and when I woke up, 
I was holding my hand above my head as if holding an invisible glass, trying not to spill it. And that was last week, and here I am now, cured from smoking, alcoholism, drug use, and eating potato chips, I guess. Listen close next month for the ice in my whiskey and the smoke blowing from my lips, but at the moment, I feel good. Uh, Without it, like my father-in-law always says, sometimes you gotta stop indulging just to make sure you still can. And I like that one because it has a double meaning. Make sure you can still stop and make sure you can afford yourself more time in the future to continue indulging. Well, I've worked on that case for a long time. I spent a lot of time listening to the family talk about how affected they were by all that, and I couldn't really work that in as much as I would have liked to. The younger sister of Sherry, that was the 14-year-old that died, she was along um, with Alexis's family, the Latimers, to Folly Beach. They were painting and cleaning up. It was an old beach house they just bought. She was a really sweet girl that they kept in, well, in the one show I saw, they kept showing clips, family videos, and uh, how happy she seemed and how happy they all seemed. And she had a little sister, little dark-haired, little girl, little little sister that was following her around all the time in the videos. And, you know, her father and her mom, and they were all so close. And she just went along with her friend to help with the beach house that she was going to spend time with her best friend in over the summer and she never came home and hearing the little sister who's now an older woman talking about this she still looked like a little girl like the way she was talking about it like it, it she stuck there and she even said something that really bothered me she said you know well I heard my mom say one time after we we knew that Sherry was dead that I still have a daughter and I still have a husband and we need to find a new normal. And uh, I knew when she said that, that it was never, it it was, he didn't just kill Sherry, he killed the spirit of a, a whole family. And that's what happens, I guess. I imagine if my son, either one of them was taken away and murdered or even hit by a car, that, obviously would never be the same and it would be stained by that and very difficult it's just really sad so I hope I did a good job of uh, bringing it up a little bit there at the end it's a skill it's a skill that I have (laughs) until next time keep those eyes cocked those doors locked and stay paranoid I'll talk at you real soon thank you This summer's must-read mystery is Meredith Adamo's Not Like Other Girls. A girl search for her missing classmate digs up dangerous secrets in this unputdownable feminist thriller, perfect for fans of Veronica Mars and a good girl's guide to murder. 